Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 81 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen, and I'm passionate about bringing the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Michael Donovan. Michael Donovan is founding director of Edgeware Creative Entrepreneurship. He has a background in education and community cultural development, which inspired work in business design, vocational education and training, and information technology. Along with his partner, Ludmilla Donovan, Michael founded the Edgeware model of ethical entrepreneurship development in 2006. He has a coaching practice focused on the generic value of creativity and the growth of entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs, and leaders. So in today's podcast, we'll discuss Michael's broad insights into creative entrepreneurship. We'll get his thoughts and perspective on social enterprise opportunities, and we'll hear what Michael believes can be done to create stronger opportunities for positive social change. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. G'day, Tom. It's good to be here. So to kick things off, Michael, could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to work in entrepreneurship? It's, it's an unusual background for a, what I'd call myself now, which is a business educator, in that my background, and Lord Miller's, is in um, creative arts, particularly the performing arts, and what we then called in the last century community arts, then eventually community cultural development. And as such, we were particularly interested in working with disadvantaged and disengaged communities, mm. um, young people in particular, and particular in, particularly indigenous young people. But across the board, we were interested in the arts as a, uh, a field, a platform for disengaged communities to find a voice, to collect, connect, connect with each other, yeah. um, to connect across boundaries, and to advocate on their own behalf, so mm-hmm. to make artefacts, to make statements, and etc. So it was a kind of politicised notion of the arts, yeah. and it was in that work that we came to business education. We'd find ourselves working invariably through with public funding in, say, an indigenous community in the bush, yep. working with young women who were producing visual arts, and we found there was a real risk that when the money dried up and the experts flew home that there would be an entropy, that the value of that work would be um, un- not sustained. Yeah, and yeah. Um, kind of we found by accident <laughs> we were looking for alternatives, looking for action. We um, came up with ideas, you know, like a pop-up gallery in that example, or yeah. a, uh, an online store or mm-hmm. something. So it became help- about helping them do that, and that turns out to be business education. So in particular with that constituency in mind, with Indigenous young people, and which is to say the whole mob, because they tend not to hive off young people quite as readily as, as non-Indigenous Australia does, we found ourselves developing a, a tool set 
that people found accessible, mm. um, that was very flexible, that sort of fitted the bill of working in those conditions. Yeah. In order for people to create a pop-up gallery or an online store or something and control that, the bonus mm. was that that then meant that it was no longer about us as the experts, but yeah. they became more self-sufficient. Yeah. So it did a social job as well as you know the the job of the intervention, to use a word. Yeah. Um, and we found by you know pure dumb luck that in a political economy which is changing, which was, you know, this is early days, this is the last couple of decades of last century, so mm -hmm. there wasn't a term called social enterprise or social entrepreneurship at the time. Um, we found that tool set and that technology, that pedagogy, works for everybody. And that's still the case in, mm -hmm. in my experience. If it works for blackfellas, it'll tend to work for everybody else. Um, because it's accessible, it's flexible, it's based on relationship, mutuality, trust, experience, and it's very, very focused on real drop on your foot benefit. Mm -hmm. So you can't fart around. Indigenous people have, in my experience, have a really fine nose for bullshit. Um, so you can't try to fool people with a lot of big words and things. They have to see the sense of what you're doing yeah. in their immediate context. You know, yeah. And again, a term that wasn't around then, but is now is just-in-time training. So it's a pedagogy and it's a tool set that's radically learner-centered, experiential and just-in-time. Mm. So we call that curriculum on the fly. We, we, we have tools and we have a course now and we even have an accredited course, but it's very, very flexible. Mm. Um, so we have, you know, we can boast. We've worked over the last 12 years with probably 1,700, 1,800 startups. Yeah. Um, in this kind of, you know, benefit, social benefit, no, ethical space. Yeah. And amongst our Indigenous customers, we have 100% retention. We have never lost an Indigenous student. That's fantastic. Um, and, and in fact, we've got a really high retention rate generally because mm -hmm. if people see the sense of it, then that becomes self-motivating. It's not us being experts. Yeah. It's about us laying a table of dishes where the dishes are the potential things that experience, not book learning, have told us mm -hmm. will be useful for you. And it's up to you then what you pick up from the table yeah. and what you ignore. So we're co-creators of the learning. It's not about me teaching you anything. Yeah. Um, and that works. Mm. That's certainly some really, really interesting experience. And you can see how there's a sort of a natural progression that's led you to do what you do now. Yeah. How did you find your purpose then? You know, how, how did, what started you off on this journey? Well, it was always this notion, I guess, of social benefit, you know? I, I, did, a, I did a project um, for the Office of Small Business in the South East Queensland Indigenous Chamber of Commerce last year, which was consulting on the notional formation of a statewide Queensland Indigenous Chamber of Commerce, a mm. network of Indigenous businesses. So I travelled around a lot, I talked to a lot of Murray entrepreneurs, Murray yep. small businesses, and these, you know, I was the breadth of what was out there is extraordinary. You know, mm. these are people not just putting dots on canvas or dancing in airports. You know, these are people that are doing um, high-tech VR touring education businesses and yep. fiber optic provision to the islands and stuff you know serious modern businesses and I so I don't know dozens of businesses there and I did not find one that did not have an idea of 
benefit for mob mm-hmm. built in to the business. It was just simply part of the cultural formation of the business, benefit mm-hmm. for mob. And I've seen that too in places like Bhutan. And it's sort of become de facto my, one of my aims for this part of my life to try to re- render the, the term social entrepreneurship redundant. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is, that there's no such thing as social enterprise where the assumption is that there's something else called enterprise which has no social um, yeah, conscience, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, what does it take to build a cultural predisposition towards social responsibility into it from the beginning? Mm. And that's really been my practice. So when I worked in the arts, it was about benefit. How could the arts benefit people? Now when I work in business, it's how can it benefit people? Mm. Um, and it's just woven in by now. It's just hardwired. I can't imagine working in some kind of business that exploits um, the environment that exploits people. Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, it seems common sense, right? Well, if you go, if you want to live a meaningful life, you know, I mean, we got this from one of this this sort of bumper sticker from one of our clients once, one of our customers, and again, I don't know it's, if anybody, if this is attributed to anyone or this person made it up. We've sort of taken it up, and it's really attractive to our customers, and that's. The, the DNA bumper sticker is make money, have fun, change the world. Mm. In about similar, about um, equal proportions, you know. So make money is the, the question, is this thing sustainable financially? Can it pay for itself without creating dependence on a big brother or a big sister, government, corporations, whatever? Um, have fun is the question, is this thing meaningful? Does this help me become the best I can be? Does this give me a place or a purpose in the world? Mm. And change the world means, is this thing responsible? Does this thing give back in return for what it takes out? Mm. And I want to, and so far, my customers want to answer yes to all of those questions. Yes, it pays for itself. Yes, it is meaningful. And yes, it makes a difference. Mm. That's just the DNA, like I say. Everything sort of comes from that. Even when then expressed in the tools, you know, we'll do this visioning, goal setting process. Um, you like, you know, like Stephen Covey says, start with the end in view, right? So we uh, we invite you to envision mm. the, the ultimate success of your business, yeah. and we'll put it in those terms, like how much you're earning, you know, yeah. how meaningful is it? Are you having fun? Where's your relationship at? Are you enjoying your life? You yeah. know, and are you making a difference? Mm. And if so, how? And how will you measure that? Yeah, because you can't manage what you can't measure. You know, trucker. So yeah, you can measure finances, obviously, and that's where a lot of business education defaults to the financial machinery of business. But how would you measure your um, level of personal actualization, happiness, um, relationship success, that sort of stuff? And how would you measure social impact, social value? And there are, as it turns out, metrics for those things. So build those in to your business case. You don't Mm. just tack them on to the end as a kind of CSR um, plumage. You you actually make it part of the structure of business. Mm. So again, we just kind of accidentally found ourselves in this discourse called social enterprise now. But it really has its roots in working with indigenous kids in the valley in 1990. Yeah, you know, I really like the uh, the DNA and the way that you've framed that. And in working with a great breadth of different entrepreneurs, 
What then have you found to be some of the biggest challenges for purpose-driven entrepreneurs as they work to create this change in the world? I think they're generic challenges. Uh, you know, I mean, the, there's, there's the obvious, you know, inferential challenges about, you know, living in a, a shallow patriarchal racist culture in Australia, you know, um, you know, there's challenges associated with that. But really in terms of making a business work and uh, your business as a practice and your business as a life, um, as an activity that you that you are, not mm. that you just do, that, that identifies you. Um, there's, there's two things that, well, put in a, in a positive way, rather than talking about a challenge, in terms of attributes yeah. that, of success that I've noticed in, you know, among those hundreds of people we've worked with by now, there is persistence or commitment. Mm. So just sticking with stuff, you know, not taking no for an answer, having a clear-eyed view of what you're about yeah. and sticking with it, you know. And what comes along with that is the second thing, which is resilience. Mm. Understanding that there will be risk, understanding that you have to take risk if you're an entrepreneur, if you're doing something novel, yeah. um, and understanding that that is an opportunity to learn. Mm. So sticking with things, learning from mistakes. If you can actually bring those generic qualities into whatever it is that you do, then you can deal with the more ephemeral um, challenges that surround you. Yeah. And how that's useful for us, and again, we're very practical, is that neither of those, we're not born with either of those things. Mm -hmm. those, are, those are learned behaviours. And yeah. if they're learned behaviours, they can be cultivated and nourished and challenged and extended mm -hmm. um, through experience. So yeah. if you remember what I was saying before about experiential, the experiential orientation that we have and the really practical orientation. So rather than... Um, We'll certainly talk about what your thing is and what the value is and how you're going to sell it, who your customer is, what your value proposition is. Yes. But we'll also talk about, you know, the 80-20 rule and getting just enough of it together to take it out and try it and be ready for it to fall down yeah. and then for you to fall down again and fall down better the next time yeah. until it does finally work mm -hmm. experientially. Yeah. In relation to others in a social context, uh, that's just straight business wisdom, mm -hmm. you know, but if you want to actually make change in the world and benefit, create benefit for others, the same rule applies. Mm -hmm. So if I'm working as, you know, an old white man with um, a group like the Logan Women's Health Centre, how do I bridge the, the cultural and other gaps, the gender gaps that actually exist in there? Well, we get down to this generic stuff. Uh, and for a man, for a Murray, for a refugee, commitment is the same. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, commitment to different things, but the value of commitment is the same, mm -hmm. and the value of resilience is the same. So we can work on that. Yeah. And that's the language. Before we started recording the podcast, we had this conversation about action mm -hmm. and creating your own luck. So how does that tie into taking the action and not just thinking about these things, but taking those steps? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's become a really, again, it's simple but profound, you know, like simple doesn't mean easy. And we found this with developing the tools. The, it comes from a, a residential workshop that we ran with a group of young people, young entrepreneurs, um, over a long weekend. And there were these covered concrete walkways connecting the buildings and we gave everybody chalk and we encouraged them to draw or write or whatever on the walkways. And somebody wrote big letters, action precedes clarity. 
And again, I don't know if somebody said that, somebody famous said that, I haven't really found it on the net, but it made absolute sense to us and has become another one of those memes. If you want to work out, if you want to try out an idea, if you want to actually create a business case, yeah. then have sufficient of the idea, and we have tools for that, to be able to take it out and try it. Mm. So if you want a catering business or you want to start, you know, manufacturing cakes or whatever, then make some little prototype cakes and take them down to the markets and see what people buy and what people don't and get yeah. some feedback from them. And for cakes, read anything. You know, it can be disability services or it can be motor car maintenance or pet care mm. or whatever. You know, find the... We, we encourage people to be smart and lazy. Mm. You know, they won't be lazy. Because if you actually believe in your business, you'll take, do what it takes and you work the hours that you'll work. But imagine that you're lazy. Mm. What would the lazy person do? What would be the delegation? What would be the shortcut? What would be the workaround that you could use to get that idea out and get some real feedback from real people? Yeah. So again, it's this experiential start from sort of something quite simple. Um, apply, commit, commit to it. Mm. Um, because again, with, with once you do commit to something, once you're actually an agent, once you act in the world, then, and there's nothing magical about this, it's not like, you know, God smiles on you or anything. It's just that the act of going out in the world and getting feedback and noticing things makes things possible. Mm. It makes things visible that otherwise would remain invisible. Yeah. And that can present to you as luck or as good fortune or as providential. There's no such thing. You've just made it visible by mm. virtue of you turning up yeah. and engaging with the world. Mm. And this is what we'll find again and again and again. It's a you know, trope. You'll hear entrepreneurs say, you make your own luck. And that's what I think they say. Yeah. Do you think that ties in in terms of taking action and this sort of method you've spoken about now to the lean startup, what Eric Reese would say about build, measure, there's, 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 again, sort of in retrospect, you know, I mean, this is what academics do, isn't it? You know, they, they notice something and they apply terms for it and then they own it. You know, I mean, when I was doing my master's research, we did action research, an iterative cyclical process, you know, plan, act, observe, reflect, plan, yeah. act, observe, reflect in cycles, call it agile, you can call it six sigma, you can call it lean startup, you can call it design thinking. Yeah. That's the most recent sort yeah. of. Um, phrase. They all have in common iterative, cumulative, mm. feedback-based loops. Yeah. You know, that's all it is. Absolutely. And I can find, you know, you and I can invent a name now, you know, we can call it something, you know, the grey zone. And suddenly if we're clever enough in marketing, we'll have a little book and we'll mm. have seminars and we'll be the yeah. grey zone, you know, we'll have bandanas, we'll have stickers. Yeah. It's actually the same principle. And Indigenous people, again, I, I continue to learn from Indigenous people. They just continue to challenge me. Two days ago, this extraordinary midwife, Marianne Kobke, at, at a seminar, was, was asked the question, you know, is what you're doing, which is midwifery, but is this whole sort of, I call it spiritual line of what she does, you know, is what you're doing art or is, is it health, you know? And she said, well, you use these words. 
art and health, you know. We didn't have words like that, you know. We've been doing, for millennia, we've been doing what I'm describing today, you know, which is being good for women giving birth and helping people enter the world in a certain way, mm -hmm. you know. Um, that is, she didn't buy the discourse that was being put to her. Um, and and that's, that was another reminder to me of how often we take our own assumptions and presumptions about the world into what we do. Yeah. And we create these names. Whitefellas love these names, these categories and these heuristics where we kind of shortcut everything. Um, when all we really need to do is to sort of listen very carefully to what's going on and get out of our own way so that we can serve the situation appropriately. Yeah. And that situation can be making money. It doesn't have to be, you know, oogie boogie. It can be very practical. Yeah. Um, so I'm working with a young woman now who has more or less serious degree of disability. Um, and in our first workshop, such was the nature of the culture, she was in tears a couple of times because she was so unused to being, to being treated in a regular way. Mm -hmm. by regular people. And that's not a disability workshop and that's not disability strategy, that's just a responding appropriately to the situation that we find ourselves in. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's sad that she, it was so novel that it broke her up. Mm -hmm. you know? So for her, read migrant, refugee, read young people with mental issues, read gay kids, kids in jail. These are just the circumstances in which you find yourself. Mm. And if you've got a, a really adaptable tool set and an adaptable methodology, everything, anything. I heard the other day that this young dude is sort of um, not here, not one of our customers, but had um, with a disability. And uh, his special, like his secret sauce, his magic was, he was really good at waiting. <laughs> could really wait still for long times, you know. So he made a business out of standing still in those lines, you know, for tickets and stuff. He, he would hire himself out, stand in the queue from six in the morning, and the guy that hired him would come along at 12 when the queue got up to the head of the thing, you know, and pay him, and off he went. Now, you know, that, that all that that is doing is reframing what, you know, we might call a disability as an asset. Mm thinking asset instead of deficit, yep. using yep. business language. And that is the appropriate response. That's not me carting in my discourse and carting in my assumptions about my judgments, my opinions about that guy. Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely. There's some really nice insights there. So to move it to the old ambulance station, you're the president then. Mm. Could you tell us more about this hub? Mm. Where is it located and what sort of projects are coming out of this space? Well, in a way, the, the old AMBO, as we call it, the old ambulance station, is a kind of exemplar of pretty much everything I'm talking about, made into a building, you know, or yeah. manifesting as a building. Um, it started as like it was an old ambulance station. It's a town in a town called Nambour, about 100 kilometres north of Brisbane. Um, the town is suffering economically and socially, culturally. Uh, it was. Uh, kind of the hub of a sugar industry. The mm -hmm. sugar industry fell over. It was government and health services, both of those are now eroding. Shops are empty. They're in common with a lot of regional centres yeah. where there's been profound economic change, there's issues 
which in the corner of the story I just told you about the young man who can wait, can also be framed as assets, you know, namely in business terms, cheap residential and commercial rental mm -hmm. um, and a railway line to the capital. So what might be possible, you know, this event that I mentioned a minute ago the, where the Indigenous um, midwife presented was catered by two young dudes who run a vegan cafe next door to the old Lambo. Now they started with a coffee shop down at the railway station then we gave them the front left hand corner of our gallery space and now they've graduated to their own space and they're employing people mm. and catering for big events. So it started its life as a creative industries incubator yep. which failed. I won't go into details of that but it failed. The, the, re the remnant um, volunteers, it's owned by local government, the remnant volunteers were run ragged. I was invited to come and chair the board um, by virtue of the fact that I'd run some of, we had run some of the Edgeware courses there already, so they sort of knew what we were on about yep. and had a certain credibility with them. And really, oh, that was five years ago. Over the last five years, we've been it's like climbing Maslow's pyramid, you know. You go from sort of getting the asbestos out of the roof and clearing it. We inherited 20 grand's worth of ATO debt, um, make sure, replacing the hot water system, make sure the toilets work, that sort of stuff. Yep. Um, into really what's starting to kick in right now. It's really at, a, at, a, at an interesting time. So this is the old ambulance station.com, just to put in a plug. Um, a transformation, a cult, and it's a cultural transformation really from the kind of welfare state con construction of a heavily government subsidised service provider for the creative industries or anything else yeah. um, to a social enterprise. So a self-guiding, self-determining, self-funding business which has social benefit woven into what it does. Mm. Um, a lot of the people on the board, the other people on the board have done the Edgeware course so we're very much on the, the same page with that yeah. make money, have fun, change the world thing. Yeah, correct. So the, the Thrive event, the, the event I keep mentioning that happened two days ago, was did not happen. It, it was about creative wellness, you know, yeah. how the arts and health might elaborate and um, add value to each other. Yeah. That was not a response from some government policy for which we applied for a grant and mm. deployed the grant. That was our idea from the beginning, yeah. which we designed, put on the ground and Knockwood um, is, is revenue neutral. Um, but the impact of which, even a few days later, is, has been profound in our local area. Mm. So we're calling that AMBO Enterprise. Yeah. Um, and it is, while we are a not-for-profit, um, it is about um, you know things like, well, we need to do something about the infrastructure, it's still a fairly run-down building, so why can't we lean on our landlords, the council, to guarantee um, provision of professional development uh, events, um, teaching, training, um, services yep. for us to locate them in their space, mm. what is after all their space, guarantee us that income for three years, which we can then pick up and leverage in the debt market to self-fund our own infrastructure development yep. and take the building the way we want it to, mm. rather than the way government or anybody else wants it to go. Yep. 
Um, so that, that's a cultural shift and, and we, we've got to be very careful to bring our constituency along with us because mm -hmm. if you've grown up in the welfare state model of free provision, um, yeah. again we learn from the indigenous people, you know, it, it produces dependencies and it produces cultures of entitlement yeah. um, and you've got to kind of break those without offending people. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a kind of parallel discursive development talks and seminars where we try to, people like me can talk a lot, you know, try to make these things clear as ideas mm -hmm. yeah. so the practice matches the ideas. It's not just seen as a few smarty pants, over-educated people yeah. um, um, on their bandwagon, you know, it's actually seen as cultural change. Yeah. So I'm talking about cultural change, we, the Old Ambo project started five odd years ago. But in, this, in that space, how would you say you know, the social enterprise sector has changed during that time and where do you really see it going? I mean, you spoke just at the beginning about not really wanting to use that term social enterprise in the future. Yeah. You know, where, how do I you mean, I, I think, I don't know if I'll live to see it, but I, 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 I'd love to live in a world where the, word social, the term social enterprise is unnecessary because it's simply inconceivable to think of any business which does not have benefit and Absolutely. value to yeah. the world. You know? So it's just simply enterprise. This mm -hmm. is the way we do business. Yeah. Um, it, I think at the in the meantime people are recognising the phrase and you know, saying it's creative industries as distinct from the arts. You know, if, if that's the way people want to label things then that's fine. Mm -hmm. But like Auntie Marianne, let's not get hooked up into those um, discursive labels too yeah. much and yeah. let's consider ourselves in terms of relations and interactions and what happens rather than what we kind of what school of thought we belong to or what yeah. tribe we belong to or whatever, you know, let's just be practical. Do you think it can create an us versus them type of atmosphere? Yeah. Well, when it started, you know, in QUT where I've done some work for, you know, dancing around QUT for at least 20 years, they have a centre for um, social enterprise and they, when they were starting up, they were doing some research, as academics do, you know, there's this online um, uh, questionnaire and I sort of started to answer it as Edgeware. Now, Edgeware is a proprietary limited company. It's not a not-for-profit. And part of thinking there, I realise now, when we set it up 12 years ago, was this point. We didn't want to be in some kind of community sector category. We wanted to be in business. You know? um, so I'm filling in the form, you know, in two, two, three pages in, and it's the question is, um, are you for-profit or private? And I ticked private and went click, thank you very much, you don't need to go any further. So at that stage, I'm, it's, it's different now, but at that stage you had to be a not-for-profit to be a social enterprise sufficient to be able to participate in that survey. Now, we would all agree probably by now we're past that, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. um, that you can actually have private companies, you can yeah. have trusts, there's all sorts of legal structures that can still have social purpose. Yeah. So as you'd expect, over five years that discourse and the practice has deepened and broadened. Um, but I'd still like to get to the point where those indigenous businesses that I mentioned uh, are at, just culturally to a point where it's inconceivable, it's unthinkable for me to start a business which doesn't have value for mob mm. built in. Yeah. It's just not, it's just assumed. Yeah. And I've encountered, encountered that too in um, Bhutan, uh, which is a developing country. It maps to Indigenous Australia 
in this respect. You know, they have a, a notion called gross national happiness, which balances gross national product. So it's about wellness, yep. cultural, so social, spiritual wellness, as well as financial mm -hmm. wellness, you know. That's integrated and it's expressed in kitchens and dining rooms and bedrooms and streets as much as it's expressed in shops and culture bunkers like theatres yes. and cinemas and mm -hmm. universities. Very interesting. I mean, Bhutan's just, I mean, with their G&H, mm. uh, over the years, you know, comparing that to GDP mm. And, mm. And, and seeing how this conversation around GDP can be advanced to and more like uh, GNH. In, in, in one way, I think you can say it's like ahead of the game. You know, as, as we outsource and offshore industries like manufacturing and, you know, things that robots, AI, the Chinese or the Indians can do for better, faster, quicker and cheaper, mm. then what's left? You know, and this is why we talk about the experience economy, the concept economy, yeah. um, the, the sort of value-driven economy. You know, what's left is the bespoke, the human, the, the wet, the relational, not the transactional. Mm. So these models, these ancient models, could actually be seen as models of the future. That is, to behave like this, to behave ethically, to behave, uh, to build relationship. Um, as part of transaction, is going to pay off at the till. Mm. So if you're just going into it to make money, then you can't. This is the problem with the banks. You know, yeah. their whole business model is transactional. They try to tell us their relational businesses, and we're not fooled. You know, yeah. they only see us as ciphers, as numbers, mm -hmm. um, not as people. Yeah. And they will always suffer because of that. You mentioned Bhutan, Michael. So, are there any other countries around the world that you think are really, really leading the charge when it comes to social innovation, social enterprise, call it what you like, mm -hmm. making money, doing good? There's some terrific stuff coming out of the States, and I mean, the United States is not one place, and um, I don't know so much about that because I'm afraid of Americans. I'm, I'm not attracted to the culture, I'm not attracted to the mainstream Protestant, monetarist, managerialist. Um, post-Harvard MBA business culture of the place. I know that there are these really interesting reactions to that, but I'm not in, on first take it as... If I have my druthers, I'd rather read something about Bhutan than I'd read, read something about Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, so I, don't just, I just don't know. I'm sure there's stuff, good stuff, but I just don't know. It. What I do know about it is Denmark and Scandinavia, where I've been a number of times over mm -hmm. like a couple of decades. You know, I'm interested in the way progressive social democratic traditions play out in um, business education, community work, and etc. So there's a school in Aarhus in Denmark called the Chaos Pilots, which has been very influential in our thinking about that. And, and like in the same way as Edgeware comes out of kind of community cultural development, the chaos pilots come out of social work with kids, with rough kids in Elvis. And the guy who started it up was a social worker. He thought, oh, this stuff I'm doing with these kids, this could turn into a business. Mm -hmm. And now it's a, it's a good brand in Scandinavia. And a lot of people are copying it. So they've been very influential. And the Norwegians and the Finns in particular have some interesting takes on this sort of work. Yeah. Most recently, um, we, we visited in January this year uh, uh, an organization in Brussels called Transformer, which I'd really recommend people have a look at, in, especially in the sense that unlike, say, the Scandinavian model, this is entirely privately funded. 
So it's two guys that have debt funded this really substantial facility. Mm. Um, so it's Transformer with an A, not an ER, um, in Brussels, where people can go to develop business ideas, have play with business ideas, they have a fab lab and a makerspace, so they can actually try out ideas, play around with technology, build prototypes, and then go into light manufacture, mm. and then market, and then distribute, store and distribute. So manufacture, store and distribute, all on the same roof. So you can go from having kind of a really loose idea to actually storing and, and distributing the product that you make under that roof. So there's clusters of expertise around each stage of that. Um, and the whole thing is imbued. It's a U-shaped building built around a permaculture garden. They, they talk about curating businesses the way the bees curate their garden. Yeah. You know? yeah. So it's this organic, um, socially um, oriented activity, which is privately funded and pays for itself. There's no government money in it at all. Now, I think that's a really interesting model. It's a, I'm not quite sure of anything I've seen anywhere that does that. Um, and it's this cultural thing. You know, it's, it's a culture from the beginning. And that doesn't come out of anywhere. Those two guys that started it and this kind of tribe around them have been slugging away at this stuff for years. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the kind of, and it's an example of the, the, the kind of business, or the, in my end of the stick, developmental, educational training in the stick that's going to emerge. Yeah. It's a really, really great example, that's for sure. So, books, Michael. To wrap things up, yeah. which books would you recommend to our listeners? Um, I don't read a lot of business books because I'm not a real business oh, head. Book, books in general. Well, I tell you what, one, one of the things, uh, there's a school of um, kind of thinking that started off as therapy, a bit like NLP, neurolinguistic programming. It started as a therapy, then business got hold of it. It's, it's called Solution Focus. It's mm -hmm. a radically positive, future-oriented, strengths-based orientation to coaching yeah. and we actually deploy that in our business planning as well. Now it turns out that in um, solution focus you imagine the best of all possible worlds, the best way. I ask you the question, if your business absolutely goes perfectly over the next five years, how will you know? Mm -hmm. How will you measure that? What will be the conditions? What will be the gap? What will be the, what will be the um, evidence? that you can see that it's yeah. been totally successful. Now, it turns out that's one of Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people. He calls it start with the end in view, and there's good science for that now. He just assumed that because he's a business genius, yeah. and that book was published decades ago, and it's never been out of print, and I really recommend that. Mm. It's simple, really clear, really practical. Easy to understand and apply. Um, there's another one, I, I think a lot of a lot of popular business books are really one or two ideas that people have. And it's a bit like we were saying with Agile, with you know, sort of these sort of Six Sigma systems. They, they find a term and they go out to find evidence for that. You know, so chapter one is the statement of the idea. Chapters two to 13 are stories about that and are there to prove the idea. And then there's a, a capstone chapter at the end. Now, I don't think you need to read the whole book. You actually need a distillation of the first chapter and the last one. Mm -hmm. So there's this sort of, this, I've got to read it, Covet, C-O-V-E-R-T, the 100 best business books of all time. And it gives about three pages to 100 
the business books that you'll find in any good business bookshop, and pretty much that's all you need, in my view. You can get in three pages what they typically try to sell you in 200, in my view. Value for money. Yeah. So the 100 best business books of all time. I really like Seth Godin for the net, for marketing, for marketing change. Genius. Yeah. And he's accessible, you know. I mean, he gives away so much. He's a perfect example of a modern business. He, he makes money by giving stuff away. Mm. Um, Daniel Pink, who's a sort of popular journalist, psychologist, was a, um, a, a speechwriter for the Clinton Gore White House, um, has written about motivation, has written about the new economy, this concept economy. Yeah. Uh, why the future belongs to right brainers, big internet presence again, a lot of his stuff will be free. There's a guy called Hugh McLeod, his website's called gapingvoid.com, he's a sort of IT guy, but he's very funny, he, he writes cartoons and he's got, a, he's got a free PDF out there called How to Be Creative, which is really sarcastic and tongue-in-cheek, but he's like this Venachuk guy, but with a heart, you know. Yeah. And, and so, Hugh McLeod, gapingvoid.com. And finally, anything and everything from my point of view as a trainer and as an educator by Ken Robinson. So, he's got, I think it's the single most popular TED talk. He's got quite a big uh, video. He's, he's a raconteur, he's very amusing, very smart guy. And he talks about the kind of ways we need to develop and educate and train people for this emerging concept economy mm -hmm. um, in a very clever, amusing way. Fantastic. Well, there's some excellent books there and I'll stick links through to all of them at the, the bottom of the article, Michael. Thank you so much for sharing your really brilliant insights and experience and time today. Very much appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Most certainly look forward to touching racing in the future. Lovely to talk at you. <laughs> <laughs>